John chapter 1. This evening begins the narrative portion in the book of John. The rest of the gospel will be done in narrative form, whereas the first 18 verses are very much introduction material. There's no statement of time. There's no statement of linearness. It is simply statements made introducing the person, the character and work of Jesus Christ, what he came to do, and introducing a second theme. We don't normally do this during a sermon, but let's get interactive for just a moment. The first theme is, of course, the person, character, and work of Jesus Christ. Can anyone remind me and remind all of us of the second theme that we've emphasized greatly that's going to follow us through the Gospel of John? First one is the work of Jesus Christ. The second one is verses 10 and 11 and 12 were kind of the elaboration upon that second theme. We recall that the second theme is the reality that though Jesus Christ in his person and work came to save mankind, yet there's this, this vein of unbelief that runs through mankind, whereas though we have the person and work of Jesus Christ, this redeeming effort, him revealing himself as the light of the world, as the word, the very declaration of God to mankind, yet a large portion of this world is and will remain in unbelief regardless of how much they know about God. And that's that second great theme is that he came into the world and the world knew him not. He came into his own and his own received him not. There's going to be unbelief and it's going to become clear as day as we get into the book of John deeper. You're going to see things. You're going to read about People who have seen things, miracles, great miracles, and as later on the book of John testifies, though they saw those miracles, yet they believed not. We need to understand that. That's that second great theme that we need to keep in mind. It shouldn't deter us from telling the world. But what that's going to do is help us keep what we do and how we live in perspective and also help with our theology um, help us not to get imbalanced when we think of certain theologies that claim that the church will usher in the kingdom by seeing everybody become Christian and then the kingdom will just begin such theologies as that just simply do not mesh with what we see in the themes of the book of John so that's just a little bit of a reminder as to what, what's going on here. And now we enter into the narrative phase of John, and we're going to see this very clearly. Verses 19 through 28, I've entitled this message, Greatness Defined. Greatness Defined. In human terms, greatness is often gauged by accomplishment. Most of the great men, if you were to open a history book or were to open, I don't know, I don't know if... Time magazine does the greatest men of the century or something. I'm sure they do do something like that, whatever will sell magazines. But if, if you were to open one of these publications or you were to open a history book and you were to look at the men in that book and you were to look for men that might be considered great men, 
They are in history books. They are great men primarily because of something that either they have made or done that has contributed to the development of mankind or they're in there because they have had an undeniable impact upon mankind. Contributions to mankind such as inventors, inventor of the cotton gin, inventor of the printing press, inventor of the automobile, the internal combustion engine. These men are considered great because of a great contribution they have given to society. There are other men that are often labeled as great because of the impact they've had on society. Men like Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Constantine, conquerors, men who are great because they killed many other men, men who are great because they have conquered many lands, men who are great because of the wars that they have won, men who are great because of the wealth or empires that they have amassed. But as we even consider the song we just sang a moment ago, Take the World, But Give Me Jesus, In the eyes of God, greatness is not tied to one's accomplishments. Greatness is not tied to one's material impact upon the world. God doesn't judge greatness relative to the accomplishments of men, nor does God judge greatness from the perspective of any sort of material impact. Greatness in the eyes of God is judged relative to his own character, and relative to his expectations upon mankind. And so, in a message that is entitled, Greatness Defined, the question to ask is, what is greatness? And maybe even a better question to ask is, am I a great man, am I a great woman, in the eyes of God? Today we're going to look at the life and testimony of a great Man, And as we do so, we will see for ourselves that it was not according to his life and accomplishments that he is a great man, but according to God's righteous expectations that he is gauged a great man. And we're going to see two aspects of a great man or a woman. And I trust that these aspects of being great in the eyes of God are aspects which we will seek to apply to our own lives this evening. Look at me in verses 19 through 23 as we see, first of all, a great man is a humble man. A great man is a humble man. Pick up with me in verse 19. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as saith the prophet Esaias. The historical narrative in John 119 begins with the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. The record of John means the testimony of John. This is that which John claimed. The gospel writer John, who is not John the Baptist, is writing now what John the Baptist is saying 
is testifying of his personal testimony of what he is doing. Now, he is sent by, or the, this group of Levites and priests is sent by the Jews. The Jews, in this sense, denotes the leadership of Israel functioning as representatives of the people. We see this title, the Jews, used many different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it refers to the multitude of the people. Sometimes it simply refers to the leaders of the multitude. Sometimes it refers to those that followed the ways of Judaism as opposed to, in the book of Acts and following, following the teachings of Jesus Christ, teaching the, the tenets of Christianity, as it would be called. In the book of Acts, it's known as the way. And so the Jews can be used in many different aspects. As we understand it here, it's very clear that they were sent from the Jews. They were sent from a group of leading men in Jerusalem. As we look a little bit farther in the passage, we'll find out that this is a group of Pharisees that have sent representatives. The leaders in Jerusalem wanted to know what John was about and sent an envoy to question him specifically regarding his authority. See, John came claiming, came claiming, came claiming authority. It's kind of hard to say that. He came claiming authority. But did he have authority? That was the question that they came to find out. Now, this situation is strikingly similar. Strikingly similar to those found in the life and ministry of Elijah, who is a type of John throughout his ministry. We know that John is coming in the spirit and power of Elijah from prophecies. We recognize that. And this particular aspect of John's ministry, whereby the authorities sent men to question him, reminded me of a passage in 2 Kings 1. It's a passage regarding Elijah and the king Ahaziah. Ahaziah fell through a lattice and was injured. He was injured unto death, and so he sent his envoy to a priest or a priestess to inquire of Baalzebub, sent them to the Philistines, land of the Philistines, to inquire Baalzebub whether or not he would live. Literally inquiring of Satan for this information. Elijah appears at some point during the journey of this envoy and says, go back. Go back and tell your king, go back and tell your master that he will not recover. He sent him a scathing condemnation for seeking out Beelzebub instead of seeking out the God of Israel. Well, this did not make Ahaziah very happy. Ahaziah asked his servants who it was that condemned them, who sent this scathing rebuke. They described him in verse 8, and this is how they described him in 2 Kings 8. And hairy man, and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. Does that sound familiar? That sounds exactly like John the Baptist, does it not? John the Baptist came with the leather girdle and the, and the, the hairy um, garment eating locusts and wild honey. And as Elijah is described, as his envoy sent back, he was wearing this hairy garment with a leather, leather girdle around his waist. Ahaziah says, go get this man. And so he sends a company of 50 troops with a captain to go seek out Elijah. They find him on the top of a hill. And those men 
come to the top of the hill and they say, man of God, the king wants to speak with you. And Elijah, you know the story, says, if I'm a man of God, then fire is going to come down from heaven and consume you. Fire falls from heaven, consumes them, burnt to a crisp, gone, done. Ahaziah doesn't like this, so he sends another company of 50 plus one, 50 and a captain. They go and they say, king wants to speak with you, Elijah. Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you. Fire falls from heaven, consumes them, they're gone. Ahaziah says, I'm not going to give up. He sends another 50 men plus one captain, and this captain had something figured out. He saw the charred remains of his comrades as he walked up that hill and he said, um, this isn't going to be me. And so he fell down on his face before Elijah and he said, look, I'm just the messenger. Don't kill the messenger. May have been where that phrase was derived. Can you just come see the king, please? And Elijah says, okay, I'll go see the king. Why did the king call him? And when the king called him in, he questioned his authority. He questioned the authority he had to make such a scathing condemnation. Elijah says, look, you inquired of Beelzebub instead of inquiring of God. Is there not a God in Israel? You're going to die. Ahaziah died soon after. Questioning his authority. Now the leaders in Israel are doing the exact same thing to John the Baptist. This is almost uncanny. Now, John the Baptist is not going to call fire down from heaven to consume these men. However, we do see from a synoptic gospel that he does call them blind, leaders of the blind. He calls them serpents. He condemns them for their false repentance. And he says, bring forth the fruit, meat unto repentance. So he gets very, very condemning with these false, repentant Pharisees. But they ask him, they come to him, and it says in verse 19, they ask him, who art thou? Their obvious intention was to inquire of him whether he claimed to be Christ, whether he claimed to be Messiah. Luke 3.15 informs us that these men uh, were specifically wondering if he was indeed the Christ. And it certainly was a legitimate question. To this question, he immediately confessed, as we see in verse 20, I am not the Christ. Again, we see this double negative thing going on here. He confessed and denied not, but confessed, showing the emphasis upon his denial. We had seen this a few verses back in the, in the first chapter here of John as well, where he blatantly and absolutely denied being Messiah. He is not the Christ. He is not Messiah. He is simply one that is the forerunner to the Christ. In the midst of Many people who certainly would have accepted John's ministry, many who would have probably even accepted him as the Christ, he denied this distinction. He denied this title. He's a humble man. He's seeking no glory for himself. So they recognize he's not the Christ. Well, perhaps he's someone else. They ask him, art thou Elias? I would like to mention at this point before we get much farther, you see the word here, ask, in verse 19. In verse 21, you see the word asked. You will see it again. That word ask is the same word. Remember when we were studying the role of women in the church and I said that there are two different words for ask? One word means an honest inquiry whereby you are sitting under the authority of another. The other is an authoritative demand whereby you are expecting an answer. 
This is the latter. This is them saying, we have the authority here and we are questioning you. This is a demanding ask. Erotao is the Greek word. This is a demanding asking. They are not coming with a spirit of humility. They are not coming with a spirit of, of inquiry. They are coming with a demand for satisfaction. So they say, are you the Christ? They're not asking it so that they can worship him if he says yes. They're asking it so that the leaders in Jerusalem can then assess the situation. Then they say, art thou Elias? The Pharisees inquire regarding a prophecy found in Malachi 4.5, which states that God would send Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, in the Hebrew mind, we must understand, in the Hebrew mind, there was absolutely no distinction between the day which Messiah appeared and the day of the Lord. We see them now as two different event, uh, events. We call it the first advent uh, of Christ and the second advent of Christ. In his first advent, he come as that lamb to take away the sin of the world. And in the second advent, he's coming as the lion, the conquering king. That is the great and terrible day of the Lord. But as we think about it, this is entirely understandable. Without the New Testament, there would be absolutely no reason for them to separate the coming of Messiah with the day of the Lord. Recall, if you would, the 70 weeks of Daniel. In the 70 weeks, excuse me, I want to correct myself whenever I say that, they're the 70 weeks of Israel in Daniel. They're not Daniel's 70 weeks, they're Israel's 70 weeks. The 70 weeks of Israel, we remember that at the end of the 69th week, Messiah is cut off, and then immediately begins the 70th week, according to prophecy, wherein the tribulation happens. There is a continuity there. There is no way they could have known that there would be a church age. No way. It's a mystery. Isaiah 52 and 53 mention, mention the sufferings of Messiah, but they immediately mention his victory as well. The prophecies of the Old Testament taught no distinction in time between the coming of Messiah and the end of the world. We know from Ephesians 3, Ephesians 5, and Colossians that the church age was an absolute mystery. Unannounced until Jesus Christ. So it would make absolute sense that the religious leaders would come and would be interested to know if he's not the Christ, if he's Elijah. Because Elijah was supposed to come before Messiah. That would be a good litmus test to know whether this was actually Messiah coming. Whether this was actually a forerunner to Messiah. Is this Elijah? But there's a problem to this test. And the problem is, John denied being Elijah, but Jesus is the Messiah. And the problem with that is that, see, God just doesn't think the way we think. God doesn't see things the way we see things, and God doesn't always reveal everything to us. While we can know beyond a doubt that everything in God's word will come to pass as he promises, how he brings those things to pass often remains hidden within the sovereignty of God. There's an important lesson here for us. When we read God's promises, and particularly when we read scriptural prophecies, it's human nature for us to make speculations and assumptions about how it comes to pass. I can't tell you how many times since the Obama administration entered the White House, I've heard the phrase, well, we are in the last days. Yes, we are. 
But we've been in the last days since Jesus Christ ascended to his Father. And it's been much worse than this before, folks. When we see Christians dipped in oil and then hung up and lit on fire to light the streets of this country, then we'll be getting close to the way Rome persecuted Christianity. When they begin to take us and throw us into pits with animals that haven't eaten for weeks, then we'll begin to get close to the persecution that they faced 2,000 years ago for their faith. Folks, it could get a lot worse. Much, much worse. So yes, I agree that we're in the end times. Yes, Jesus Christ could come any day. But see, we need to recognize that God doesn't think the way we think. That God is beyond our limited scope. That though we see Israel become a nation again in 1948, that doesn't mean that that's going to be the final structuring of the nation of Israel. It could be, but it might not be. Because we are seeing such a degeneration of Christian culture today, that doesn't mean that in a hundred years there's not going to be another revival. I can imagine right before Luther nailed that 95 thesis to the door of the Catholic Church, things were looking pretty bleak. Over a thousand years of a false church. We could be headed towards another thousand years of a false church. It's possible. It's quite possible that there could be another dark age. And so we need to remember that we don't think the way God thinks. God doesn't think the way we think. And we need to keep ourselves in perspective. And this can help us immediately as well. See, God tells me in his word that he'll provide for me. And he will. And when I read that God will provide for me, I think a job, a house, maybe a car. But see, God doesn't think the way I think. God will provide, but it may not be the way I expect. I think just about everyone in this room has learned that lesson, at least in part. That God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. And the same was true in the days of John the Baptist. See, these Pharisees came with an understanding but in their understanding, they had shielded themselves from the realities that were about to confront them. Where we need to be careful is that we do not interpret a difference in how God chooses to enact his plan upon this earth as a sign that God has not been faithful to carry out that plan. Because God has set Israel aside and ushered in the church, we need to be careful not to interpret that as God not having been faithful to Israel because they're coming back around. It's going to happen again. God will redeem his people as he has promised ever since Moses. Ever since the song of Moses, which will be sung in heaven one day. And so the Pharisees question John about being Elijah. Because they won't accept a Messiah without first seeing Elijah come on the scene. But God's plan was bigger than that. The Pharisees' short-sightedness caused them to reject the Messiah they were eagerly awaiting because they were waiting for an Elijah that was not quite what they were expecting. See, because we do have a bit of a problem here. John denies being Elijah. However, in Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus stated specifically that John the Baptist was the Elijah that should come prior to the advent of the Messiah. How do we reconcile these? Why would John deny it? 
Maybe he didn't know. Maybe he was just trying to divert more attention. I don't think so. In fact, John was not the Elijah in flesh. As Luke 1.17 prophesies, he was to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That is what Gabriel announced at his conception, that John would be one that came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so when we see the prophecy in Malachi that states that Elijah must first come, he will first come. And notice I say will. He has and he will. There's a dual fulfillment here, folks. Though he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, Christ's teaching in Matthew 17, 11 through 13 makes it clear that Elijah is still yet to come. Listen to it with me. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall, future tense, first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. So see, John the Baptist was a a minor, a first fulfillment of a greater fulfillment down the road. John the Baptist is the first fulfillment of Elisha that will be fulfilled entirely with an Elisha that shall come before the second advent. That's what Jesus Christ is teaching here when he says, Elias shall truly come and he'll restore all things. You say, no, 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 you're reading too much into that, Pastor. Elijah was John the Baptist. Then why was not all things restored? All things were not restored when John the Baptist came. Therefore, he could not have been the complete fulfillment of that prophecy. It couldn't be. Elijah's still coming, and he's coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. When, while Jesus does state and the disciples understand that John the Baptist is a, fulfill, a fulfillment of the prophecy. He's not the fulfillment. Just like Antiochus Epiphanes is not the entire fulfillment of the prophecies in Daniel. Antichrist will be the culmination of all that Daniel prophesied. A minor fulfillment. A smaller physical fulfillment found in Antiochus Epiphanes if you recall back to Daniel. I know I'm referencing a lot of Daniel tonight. John, by no means, restored all things. So they ask him, Art thou the prophet? They asked him, Are you Elijah? He said, No, I'm not. Then the second half of verse 21, Art thou that prophet? He answered, No. This is a reference to the prophet that Moses prophesied would come out of the people and to whom the people, or excuse me, and would speak the words of God in Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 18. Moses said, a prophet shall come like unto me. God's words will be in his mouth. He will say all of the things that are in God's heart. This prophet was understood by Jewish teaching to be a messianic messenger. As we understand that verse now in the New Testament, we recognize that in fact the prophet is the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is the prophet that would come. But at this time, they simply knew that this prophet was attached to messianic fulfillment. John tells them, no, I'm not that prophet. He denies being the Christ. He denies being Elijah. He denies being the prophet. Folks, he has denied Every distinctive, elevated figure 
that Israel might have been looking for to usher in Messiah. He's denied them all. What a humble man. Who does he say he is? Verse 22, Then said they unto him, Who art thou? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? Answer for yourself. Tell us who you are. Justify your ministry in my mind. Justify yourself in the eyes of man. Give yourself a title. The title that John associates himself with is the most minimal figure in prophetic literature that one could find concerning Messiah found in Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The one that John associates himself with is the one that is giving all exaltation to Jehovah God. The one that is simply crying in the wilderness, look at God, look at God, look at God, look at God, look at God. He's coming, he's here, look, look at him. That's the one John associates himself with of any prophetic passage in scripture. He sees himself as prophetically important only to the degree which he is able to point others to God. Can you see the humility that clothes this man? Can you perceive the way he is keeping all of these expectant people at arm's length from himself? What if you had been chosen by God to be the forerunner to Messiah? Would you have done the same? Maybe just a little bit of glory to yourself. Maybe just that little bit of, yeah, yeah, God did choose me. Yeah, the angel Gabriel broke 400 years of silence at my conception. Yep. The angel Gabriel appeared to my father in the temple and announced my birth. Yet my father didn't believe him, so he was struck dumb until I was born. The day of my circumcision, when they named me, when my father showed faith again, he prophesied that I would be the forerunner to the Messiah. I would be called prophet of the highest. He could have walked around with a little name badge that said John, prophet of the highest. But he didn't. He didn't. He walked around saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When I was younger, I was reading a book. It was a book about the special operations military group. It was a covert tactics group. And the premise of the book is there would be big, terrible hostage situations and terrorist plots. And this special covert military group had the responsibility of going in without anyone knowing, cleaning up the situation and getting out without anyone knowing that they were even there. And what would happen is, when the situation got cleaned up mysteriously, then all, all plastered all over the news in whatever country they were operating in would be news articles about how the local police did such a good job of taking care of this. Or the local military, whatever the case may be, the, the, the credit was diverted to some public face. And as I read that book, I was talking to my dad one day, and I, I said, there's no way I could ever do a job like that. And my dad, you know, expectingly said, yeah, it would be, you know, one of those tough, demanding jobs. I said, that has nothing to do with it being a demanding job. He said, I just couldn't stand to do all the work and let someone else get all the credit. 
That's what I said. I remember it to this day. And he laughed. Probably could have been a good humility lesson there. He could have opened the Bible and showed me something. But years later, that did pierce my heart as I was reading about humility and recognized that buried deep in this wicked heart of mine somewhere is this earnest desire to get credit where credit is due. This deep-rooted desire to see people recognize the hard work that I've done. Maybe just a plaque in the back of the auditorium that says, this church was first pastored by, sort of first pastored by. Maybe just a little medal or something. Maybe, I don't know, name written down somewhere in the logs. Maybe a memorial service in my honor every once in a while. It's here. It's in there, isn't it? We want that credit. Yet when Christ was in his teaching ministry, he would say in Matthew 11, verse 11, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. That's a pretty good honor right there, isn't it? Consider with me the words of the wisdom writers. Proverbs 15.33 The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and before honor is humility. To this day in my bedroom in Colorado I have that verse printed on my bulletin board. Consider with me Proverbs 18.12 Before destruction the heart of a man is haughty and before honor is humility. Same words. Before honor is humility. Proverbs 22.4 by humility and fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. And so we see that a great man is a humble man. A great woman is a woman who stands before God and is willing to lower herself in her own eyes and in the eyes of men in order that Christ may be exalted, in order that Christ may have the preeminence. Throughout history, we see great men of the faith from all nationalities, all cultures, all levels of education, all walks of life. You can read a missionary biography section and find Englishmen, Frenchmen, Chinese men, Indian men, See men from all walks of life, all cultures. But one thing that surrounds every man of spiritual greatness is that he's clothed in humility. Not I, but Christ. There's no doubt that there is pride amongst the 15, 16, 17 of us in this sanctuary today. There is absolutely no doubt about that. The question is, how much of that pride is rooted in your heart? Pride in our behavior. Pride in our knowledge. Pride in our abilities. Pride in our circumstances. Pride in our positions. There is pride in this room. Because pride is a part of mankind. I've told you some of my own issues with pride this evening. There's pride. How much of it is found in us? How much of it is stripping God's glory for our own? If you were 
the forerunner, the prophet, to God in flesh, how would you respond? Search your heart. Be honest with your heart. Commune with your own heart, as the psalmist said. Ask God to search your heart. Find the pride. Find those deep roots, perhaps, of pride and dig them out. Get them out. Because a great man, a great woman, is a humble man. A humble woman. Second point this evening in verses 24 through 28. The great man is a humble man. Second, a great man is an obedient man. A great man is an obedient man. Look with me at verses 24 through 28. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is whom coming after me is preferred before me, we've heard that a few times, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The gospel writer emphasizes at this point that these men that were coming to him, these priests and Levites sent from the Jews, were in fact of the sect of the Pharisees. This gives some helpful context into the spirit with which they came. I told you already that word in the Greek reflects to us the reality that the word for ask reflects to us the reality that they were coming demanding here. They were not coming asking with inquiry in mind. This supposition and understanding is greatly supported by the next few verses of our text. The men have run down their list of all prominent prophetic figures. They have their little piece of parchment there. Are you the Christ? No. Well, Elias is the next one we'd ask about. No. Well, here we go. That prophet. Are you that prophet? No. Well, who are you then? Well, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Sorry, that's not on our list. Answer for yourself. By what authority are you daring to do this, John? John's answer reveals the great disconnect. This is the first time it's revealed, and it's gonna, we're going to see it throughout, between the Pharisees, religion, and the truth of God's word. Why would they demand this answer? Wouldn't it make more sense to be excited and say, if you claim to be the forerunner to Messiah, then tell us who Messiah is. Who is he? He's coming? Who is he? But they didn't ask. They say, by what authority do you come? And John gives them a very interesting answer. He says, I'm simply coming baptizing with water. My ministry of physical baptism has no spiritual effect, is what he's trying to say. It's a baptism of repentance and preparation for a Messiah's spiritual ministry. This is just people getting wet. That's all this is. They are announcing a heart motive with it. The heart motive is effectual, but they're just getting wet. But there's one coming after me. This one, I'm not even worthy to latch up his shoes for him. I'm not even worthy to help him get his shoes on. He, he comes after me, but he's preferred before me. I call your attention to the phrase, whom 
ye know not. John one twenty six. John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. In this passage, we find our first introduction to what I like to call vain religion or empty religion. John's response is a pretty harsh condemnation of them for their vain religion. The Pharisees were not devoted to the truth. They were devoted to the practices that have been built upon the truth. John tells them that Messiah is in their midst, but they don't know him. Now, this could mean a couple of different things. Perhaps it simply meant that the identity of Jesus Christ had not openly been revealed yet. That we don't exactly know who he is yet. Perhaps that's what John meant. But we do know, we'll talk about this in our next sermon, that Jesus has already been baptized. He's already been confirmed to be the Messiah. He's probably just now, the day that we're looking at this, is probably the day, the very la- either the last day or just the day after his 40 days in the wilderness being tempted. Because the next day after this, Jesus Christ is going to come up and appear. So perhaps this is day 40. Perhaps this is right after the temptation. And at this point, Jesus Christ is being strengthened in the wilderness, preparing to start his earthly ministry. We'll talk about why we can infer that next time around. But regardless of their knowledge about his physical identity, John was at the very least asserting the reality that the life, which was the light of men, as we've already talked about and we've seen in the book of John, came into this world and they didn't know the light. He came into this world and they knew him not. While they are religious and even have many religious practices that were grounded and rooted in the truth. They had turned their religion into their God. Their praise of men, their self-righteousness had become their God. They plunged into an even greater darkness than than if they had not even been religious at all. So what separated the greatness of John from the condemnation of the Pharisees? It wasn't that John had a position as a piece of prophecy and the Pharisees were religious leaders. What separated them, what made John a great man, is that he was obedient to the light that he had received. And the Pharisees received the light and rejected it. What made John a great man? He was a humble man. He was an obedient man. What was John but the man who obeyed the voice of God to proclaim the message of Messiah? What was John but the one who went out and gave up all earthly luxuries in order to baptize men unto repentance in preparation and obedience to God? John was not great because of what he did. John was great because he did what he was told to do. The greatness of our lives is not defined by how high we climb on a ladder. The greatness of our lives is not defined by how big of a church we are able to build. The greatness of our lives is not defined by the degree to which we find success, either religiously or carnally, materially. The greatness of our lives is defined by how well we obey the God that we serve. John's call was to prepare the hearts of the people for Messiah and to herald his coming. 
that call sent John to prison very early in his ministry and in his life. That call ended up seeing the head of John presented on a platter because of the whims of a wicked woman. He never had a chance to climb to the heights of prophetic greatness in his life. He didn't need to. Greatness is not judged in the eyes of God by such things. Greatness was defined by John's humble obedience to God's call upon his life. So our question to ask this night is this. In the eyes of God, do I exhibit the characteristics of greatness? It's not about how much I do. It's about how obedient I am to what I'm called to do. It's not about how capable I am. It's about how often that capability points to God and not to me. In a few years, your life will be over. As Moses said, if by length of days we can reach six score and ten, maybe seventy, maybe eighty, maybe ninety, if we're lucky, fortunate, blessed, whatever the case may be, you might find your name in a history book. Others might know your name for a few years. Eventually, they'll just rewrite history and you'll be out of it anyway. It's just this life. Regardless, the only things that will echo in eternity are those things that are rooted in true greatness. Things done in humility. Things done in obedience. So I leave you with a quote as we close. This was a good quote and I would like it to be our parting thought this evening. Those who have done the most for Christ, excuse me, those who have done the most for Christ's cause in every part of the world have been men like John the Baptist. They have not cried, behold me, or behold the church, or behold the ordinance, but behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Let's pray.